Welcome to The Function Room, a podcast about the big numbers, the hard sums, the mathematics that defines, runs, shapes, changes, begins, ends, everything's our lives and the world around us. I'm Colm O'Regan. Episode 2, Spilling the Tea. Now, here we go, uh, worldometer.com forward slash corona. What are you doing, Cobb? Oh, nothing, just... Are you looking up coronavirus statistics again? Come on, Cobb. You know that's not good for you. But I just wanted to see the latest... You checked 15 minutes ago. But the international comparisons. You're looking at Sudan? This isn't a league table, Colm. It's real people. I think you need to speak to someone about this. It's it's not healthy. You mean a shrink? No. A statistician. Yeah, he's... I mean, I'm right. My name is Garrett Green, and I'm an assistant professor in statistics in UCD. I know nothing about statistics, apart from the fact that numbers are published in the news. But as I find out from Garrett, there's a whole lot more to it than that. What is statistics? Uh, well, that's a good question, Colm. And I suppose the the thing about it is that the ordinary public might have a different idea as to what statistics is than statisticians themselves would use. So on the one hand, you have statistics, which are just numbers, and everyone's used to that. You know, you can look at the number of COVID cases or the size of the population and the number of people with different characteristics. And that's one aspect of statistics. It is just numbers. But the way we use the term, really, it's about a, a sort of a science of understanding probability and understanding uncertainty and it's a science that's about taking large amounts of data and then trying to answer questions about the underlying truths by using certain models probabilistic models and mathematical models about how that where those data came from when i was going to school statistics was one chunk of a bit of maths but in your your job title is that you're it's the department of maths and statistics which makes it seem like it's quite a big deal why is statistics Uh, important because in real life unfortunately we can hardly ever know things with certainty so maths i suppose uh, is an abstract uh, art and it deals with you know maths deals with numbers as sort of uh, idealized things where you know the you know they have exact values and they can be manipulated in certain ways In, in real life we don't tend to have that we tend to have uncertainty about almost everything in some areas it's lower and in some areas it's much higher but generally speaking we never see the whole picture and we never have exact numbers. And what we really have to do is take in data, take in observations about the world around us, and then try to infer what the real truth is. Things that we're talking about at the moment, you know, with COVID going on and so on, we might want to know what proportion of the population have COVID. Well, unless we test absolutely everybody, we can never know that. But what we can do is we can devise a way to test a subsample and make some prediction or make some inference from that. That's what statistics does. And in really, in almost every field of life, you end up having to use statistics, even if you're not aware of it, because you never have access you know, to this godlike, pure information, pure knowledge. You're always sort of fumbling around trying to figure things out. And statistics is, a, like I said, a science of trying to figure things out from data. Uh, and and it's, it's a way of taking into account the uncertainty that we deal with all the time in reality. Hearing you describe it and talking about uncertainty and doubt, I feel like... I've been misinterpreting 
numbers when they appear in the news, because that's where we see stats. We take them as absolute truths, but then it turns out that it was based on, you know, there's some guesswork and there's some sampling. It feels like there's a gap there. As a statistician, I know what I mean when I report some numbers. And if I write a paper or if I write a technical report, I report my data and I give a lot of information about how I got that result and the assumptions that I made and the uncertainty that goes into it. That tends to be a bit dry and technical. And when it gets communicated to the general public, that gets stripped out. And maybe that's partly necessary because you don't have the time to take in all that uh, extra waffle. But it does give this impression that, yeah, that, that maybe we know things with more certainty than we really do, or that we have, as I said, this absolute perfect knowledge, whereas really we, we never do. So even something like the census, which you might think is a very reliable source of information, well, there's still always stuff missing. Not everyone does the census form. You know, there's a big section of the population that probably avoids doing it for some reason, and you have to then try to make guesses about what's going on there. And we have ways of doing that. We have models, we have systems, people have worked out for a long time, ways to do that, that are less prone to being wrong. But there's always guesswork, or at least maybe guesswork is the wrong word, but there's always uncertainty. And then there's always ways to try to account for that uncertainty. Uh, I think that can be disconcerting to people when they first come across that idea. But what I would always say to them is, this is how you always operate. This is how you, you never know anything for absolute certain in life. You're always dealing with uncertainty. It's just that you sort of got so used to it that you don't think about it that way all the time. But we, so we, so our uncertainty is like, will it rain? Or is that, does that shower? Is that Does that look like a shower? And I, it feels like for me, like it's easier for me to put, these are the areas I have doubt in, you know, relationships, relationships. Uh, the the future, you know, whether those traffic lights will be orange and or in, you know, by the time I get to them, all that kind of stuff, and yet somewhere drilled into me is that oh, the numbers, the numbers that they're the, the only things I can trust, and if I can't trust them, then the whole world's chaos. Like it, it's, it, it feels like I have to unlearn some stuff. Is that a common experience? Do you think? Yeah, I think it definitely is. It's a, it's what we do in life is what we build up. We build up evidence over time. And, we, and as you build up more evidence, you acquire a greater degree of certainty about things. You know, you can be pretty sure that the lights are going to turn red at a certain time in the sequence of the traffic lights because you've seen it enough times. And after you've seen it enough times, you no longer really worry about it. You learn to just accept in life that, that a high enough probability is good enough. And that's what we call certainty. But whenever we're certain about anything, we're really just saying that we believe it with a high degree. That the probability of being wrong, we think, is fairly low. Our way of thinking is that we tend to just disregard certain things that we think as being very unlikely and just ignore them and treat them as if they're certain. And that's a very, it's probably a good way of surviving in the world. And we've evolved to think that way to some extent. Uh, so it can be disconcerting to people uh, to think that. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't help as an answer, but the answer I point out to them is even your brain works on probability. You know, even your brain isn't a, a machine that functions the same way every time. If I show you a certain stimulus you know some parts of your brain neurons will start firing if i show you the same stimulus again they won't do ex fire exactly the same way every time it'll produce a slightly different response on average it'll be roughly the same but even your brain has randomness in it even your thoughts have randomness in it so you yourself are a random machine you're a random number generator and you're wandering around in a world that's producing random data 
uh, and you're trying to acquire certainty about things, but certainty doesn't really exist. Um, so you're saying I should embrace the chaos, Gareth? Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's what we have to do, you know. Uh, so when people come to, to statisticians like me, they kind of say, you know, give me a definitive answer. And I say, well, I won't do that. I'll do almost the opposite of that. I'll give you a guess and then I'll tell you I'm uncertain about that guess and here's how uncertain I am about it. And then here's how uncertain I am about the uncertainty of that uncertainty and so on. I'll give you layers and layers of uncertainty. You have to then make your own decision as to how much uncertainty you're willing to live with. But at some point, if you're not willing to live with some uncertainty about the result of things, you won't go outside the front door, right? So, you know, life is a risk, I suppose, Uh, you know, and you just have to walk around and accept it or you can become paralyzed by it. And in the history of statistics, which we don't hear an awful lot about, and there's a lot more focus on Archimedes, you know, melting ships with a magnifying glass. But statistics, we actually have a little bit of history here in Ireland with statistics and something that we'd be very familiar with. Yeah, actually. So anyone who's um, who's done a sort of a, gone to college and done a first year stats course will have come across something called the T-test. Uh, and the t-test is a statistical test that you would use to essentially decide if the mean of some value is different between two groups. Um, so if you did, uh, say you did a trial where you gave one group set of people a drug and you didn't give the other set of people a drug, and then you measured some value in both of them, and you wanted to say whether the people was it higher, the value higher in the group people got the drug or not, you do a statistical test. You take all the measurements and you apply this test. And the, the t-test is the most common one that people would learn. And it's probably the most commonly applied statistical test in the world. And it was actually invented by a statistician who worked for Guinnesses back around the start of the, ni- the 20th century, I think, in 1900. Anyway, they wanted to do quality control. So Guinness, they were interested in saying, you know, could they check all the bags of, say, the sacks of barley or barrels of grain that they got and check that they were all of a, of a similar quality uh, and so that they wouldn't be producing bad batches of beer. But they didn't want to have to go and, you know, open every single barrel and test every single barrel. So they were interested in saying, could they sort of take small samples from all their ingredients and test them and check that they were all the same, they were all consistent? Or they wanted to know, could they take a small number of samples and tell whether one batch was bad or it was different in some way than the other? So they were interested in finding out how can you take small numbers, small samples from large you know, quantities and make some actual statistical statement about whether there's a difference between those two samples. So they hired this guy whose name was William Gossett, but he went by a pseudonym called Student because at the time using maths was uh, considered to be a trade secret. So Guinnesses didn't want uh, any of the other breweries to know that they were uh, using a statistic. Oh, so they didn't want a mathematician control. appearing in the job title or anything yeah. like that. So, so there was a secret mathematician working to make pints better is what you're saying basically yes an undercover mathematician why guinnesses don't use this in their marketing more i don't know the fact that they have they have a secret a shady cabal of secret statisticians working around the clock to improve their quality so this test is known as the student's t-test because this guy he eventually published it in you know statistical journal but he published under the pseudonym student he didn't use his real name because guinnesses didn't want people to know that he was uh, what he was working on and they didn't want their trade secrets to get out. So although it was published in a journal, it, it wasn't connected back to, to Guinnesses for a while. And after sampling pints, the conversation turned next to the kind of sampling our brains do. 
you know, we tend to take very small samples and extrapolate wildly. Statistics is actually much more cautious in its judgments than people are. You might have come across this thing sometimes about there being sort of two approaches that people can take to statistics. So there's what's called the Bayesian approach and the um, and the frequentist approach. I don't know if you've heard these terms before. So Bayesian as in named after somebody called Bayes, Bayes is that right? Yeah. And then yeah. frequentist named frequentist, after the word frequent yeah. rather than somebody called exactly. frequent. Okay. <clears throat> and um, essentially, I won't go into the, the, the sort of the, the details of it, but too much. But frequent statistics based on the idea that you kind of imagine you make some assumptions about the probability of things. And then you say, OK, if I were to repeat this, I did an experiment. And if I were to repeat this experiment, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of times, um, what's the probability that, that I would get this result, you know, this many times or whatever? It's about trying to imagine the idea that you could repeat something loads and loads of times. And then in the long run, what's the probability of it being X or being Y? And that's kind of how you think about things. You model things uh, by trying to, uh, you say, well, what's the probability that I got this result or that I would get this result uh, five times out of 10 if I did this thing a million times or whatever. Bayesian statistics is a much, it has a different approach, although they're not as different as people claim, which is that basically you go around and you make a, you make a rough guess. You start out with some assumption. You start out with a bias, almost, or a prejudice, uh, maybe, which people often do. And then as you go along, you absorb information and you sort of update your prejudice a bit. Right? So yeah. you might start out going, you know, oh, geez, I hate Dublin people. They're jackings. And then you might meet me and you might go, oh, he's, he's an absolute prick. So, uh, you know. Yeah, that's Reinforced what, the, the you whole know, reinforce the model that one you're the one data point so far and it's not contradicted the initial yeah, bias. yeah yeah it's not it's going well so if anything you're slightly more assured of it but you might go around and meet a load more Dublin people and you might gradually decide that some of them are okay and over time you might update your uh, your belief system and and presumably if you met enough people over enough time you would eventually reach an opinion which was if you like, close to the truth, right? You'd have sampled enough people that you'd then have a, have a rough idea. But you start out with some belief and then you update your belief as you go along based on the data you see. That's what's called a Bayesian approach. But that's also in a lot of, in a fundamental way, at a, like a very low down level is actually how our brains work. So Bayesian statistics was this guy, uh, I've forgotten his first name. His name was Bayes. I think he was a, a Church of England vicar. And you know what they're like, <laughs> said, <laughs> said, said me, uh, based taking the Bayesian approach uh, yeah. on what I believe exactly. all the Church of England vicars You'll have like. to slightly but update your opinion because this guy yeah, is I haven't, I haven't met enough now, so I'll need to uh, update it. So so Vicar, Vicar Bayes, what, what was he doing to start? I don't know. I mean, I, this is a bad story I've started because I don't actually know the details of it. Right. But I'm going to bluff my way through it anyway. That's fine. That's okay. He developed, what was interesting is that he developed this theorem, uh, Bayes' theorem, sometimes called Bayes' law. And it's about how you can take what we would call a prior probability, which is essentially your, your prejudice, the thing, what you believed before you started. Then there's evidence, there's what you see. And then you combine what you believed before with the evidence you've seen and you update and you get what we call the posterior, which is your sort of updated belief. So you don't... The, totally just, say, just check the words there. Posterior, is it? Yeah. Okay. Posterior. So, so ironically, prior, what we call the prior is what we call what you what you started out believing, and sometimes you started out believing it with no evidence whatsoever. You just started out. You just wrote, you know you just felt that way for some reason. Then there's the evidence that you see in the world, and then you combine those two together and you update your 
you update your belief. So ironically, it, your posterior could, in theory, make it less likely that you're talking out through your hole. <laughs> Funnily enough, like you've, yes. you've updated, <laughs> right? Okay, just in that's theory. my that's my simple uh, mnemonic for trying to remember that. Okay, so 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 Bayes came up with this. I think I think this was like late 18th century. Uh, and I really, I should just Google this and cheat while I'm talking. No, I'll fact, I'll fact check it at the end with a little, I'll, I'll with a little, little Wikipedia thing, so don't worry. I'll jump in here again. Reverend Thomas Bayes stated his theorem in the middle of uh, 18th century in an essay called An Essay Towards Solving a Problem in the Doctrine of Chances. They knew how to name essays in those days. It was nothing like My Summer Holidays. Some reckon that he was trying to rebut philosopher David Hume's argument against believing in miracles. Hume said that when someone claims to have seen a miracle, this is poor evidence it actually happened, since it goes against what we see every day. In fact, Thomas Bayes' friend Richard Price said that Bayes' theorem could be used to prove the existence of God. So there. Okay, back to Garrett. And uh, he published this idea. Now, mathematically speaking, it's actually a very simple idea and it's not controversial at all. It's It's based on the sort of definition of probabilities. But... But what he was talking about was a way that we should do statistics. So it's a way that we should treat data when we go out and start data. We should start out with a belief and then we should take the information that we have and we should update our belief based on that. The word bias and preconception and prior feelings and all that, they, they have a sort of a negative loading in that they're seen as, you know, we have unconscious bias and that leads us to make bad decisions. But is bias sometimes a good thing when it comes to crisis situations? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's always uh, examples where, you know, you would be foolish to always throw away, you know, the prior information that you've acquired over, you know, from from a history. I always like this. There's a line from Feynman. Uh, Richard Feynman is a physicist, but he always said, you know, you should keep an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. So, of course, if you if you go around and treat uh, every situation as if you've never seen that situation before, uh, you're not taking advantage of the accumulated knowledge that's at your disposal. There's a great example of this that, again, it's something that we I would teach. I, I sometimes teach statistics to medical students. And so one of the very basic concepts we teach them uh, almost in their first year is about this thing called the base rate fallacy. Base rate fallacy. Base okay. rate fallacy, yeah. So the example is it's actually quite topical because uh, I've been discussing it just recently with people about COVID. So say you go in, and you want to get a test for a disease, right? And the test for a disease isn't 100% perfect, even if you get a COVID test. Or actually, a better example sometimes is the breast cancer test. This is an example we use sometimes. If you, if, if you went for a breast check to find out, uh, to do this mammogram, whatever, to get tested for breast cancer, that test, the one that they do at the, breast, the regular breast check clinics, isn't 100% perfect. It's not 100% sensitive, which means that it doesn't always catch every single cancer. It's also not 100% uh, specific, which means that sometimes people will get a positive test, but actually it'll turn out that they don't have the cancer, right? And there's always a balance that you have to find. There's no such thing as a perfect test. So and are, are they, is that, would we sometimes hear them as false negatives and false positives? Exactly, uh, yeah. Is that so how they're reported? The, 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 in, in stats, we tend to use the term sensitivity and specificity, but they're the same uh, they're, they're almost identically related to these ideas of false positives and false negatives. So depending on what you're testing for, you have to find a balance between false positives and false negatives. You're, you're never going to get a test that doesn't give you either. 
And getting that balance right depends on the particular disease and the cost of the test. And it depends on a lot of things, really, you know, how you want to choose that balance. But one of the examples that I would teach to students is you might have a test that we say is 90% specific. And that means that it has uh, a 10% false positive rate. It means that uh, of every of every 100 healthy people you test, 10 of them will get a positive test anyway, even though they don't have the disease. And you might accept that because you say, well, you're going to end up getting a lot of people getting positive tests who aren't sick, and then you're going to have to give them other tests to find out that they're not really sick, and you waste a bit of effort that way. But maybe you have to accept that because uh, if you were to make it, if you were to improve that and get rid of the false uh, positives, you might end up getting more false negatives. You might end up missing more people. So you have to find a balance between making the test sensitive enough that you don't miss people who really are sick. Uh, but by doing that, you might then end up getting more people getting a positive test who aren't really positive. So but the question I'd always ask students is, if you have this test and we say it's 90% specific, so it means that if you don't have the disease, you've got a 90% chance of having a negative test, but you've got a 10% chance of having a positive test. So I would say to students, if you see a patient and they come in and they get a positive test, what's the probability that the patient really has the disease? So can you answer that question? Me, is it? <laughs> yeah, give it a go. So, so put, put, the, put, put it to me again, sorry, just so I okay, can... Okay, uh, I'll put it yeah. to you again. So yeah. we have a test which we say has 90% specificity or to put it the other way, it has a 10% false positive rate. So 10% of healthy people when they get the test, uh, will have a positive test, even though they're actually healthy. They don't have the disease. So if a random person comes into you and you're a doctor in the clinic and you give them the test and the test comes back positive, what's the probability that that patient really has the disease? My, I would jump in like the guy out of QI, Alan Davies, who always gets the answer wrong and say that they're they're 90% likely to have it. Yeah. So... The actual answer is that you can't say because I haven't given you enough information. Okay. But it's a really common, it's actually, it's a, it's a hugely common. It happens that everyone thinks this way. I think this way as well. So the reason you like Alan Davies and made a fool of yourself is that you need an extra piece of information to answer this question. So I told you that um, if the patient doesn't have the disease, uh, there's a 10% chance of them still having a false positive and a 90% chance of them having a positive test. And what you've done in your head is you've kind of inverted that. So I said that if they don't have the disease, there's a 90% chance of them having a positive test. And you inverted that and said that that means that if they have a positive test, there's a 90% chance that they have the disease. So you've actually, that's like what we call a conditional probability. And you've actually reversed, reversed the conditionality, if you like, in your head. I said, if X there's a 90% chance of Y. And you said that must mean that if Y, there's a 90% chance of X. That's a mathematical fallacy. It's not true. And actually, in this case, if you think about it, using a Bayesian approach will answer this question for you. So uh, the bit of information that you need to know is what's the probability of you having the disease in the first place, right? So yeah. I told you that the probability of having the disease at all is really low. Say it's one in a million, right? So the probability, if you don't have the disease and you get the test, the probability of getting a false test in this case was one, or a positive test was one in 10. The probability of having the disease in the first place is one in a million. So because something with a one in 10 probability happened, why would you then choose to believe something which only had a probability of one in a million? 
Yeah, there's two things I find interesting about that. One is my compulsion to answer the question as opposed to say, I don't know, right? I felt that I needed to answer, <laughs> which is, I think it's probably telling in its own way. Um, maybe it's a male thing as well, but also the the need to satisfactorily draw the draw a conclusion to the human interaction that I should give you an answer while not really knowing whether that answer was right. And then the other thing is that it feels like you're touching on something that we see an awful lot of, which is when health stats are reported, they talk about, you know, such and such red meat or um, fish or bicycles or, you know, big noses uh, lead to have, you know, a 30% increase in the chances of developing, um, you know, (laughs) Ebola. And, but it's like, off what, we never... You never, never knew what the chance was. What the was the original place. chance yeah. was? So now I'm going, oh shit, like I'm I'm a third more likely to get this terrible disease. And and, and we forget then what baseline we're sitting on. A third more likely than what? A third more likely yeah. than probably never, depending on. So where you that live is or who exactly what the base rate fallacy is. So basically, in the question I gave you, getting the positive test makes you essentially 10 times more likely to have it than you were before. There's a one in 10 chance of getting the false positive. So because you got the positive test, it means that the the chance of you having the disease essentially, roughly speaking, is 10 times higher than it was before. But if before it was only one in a million, it's still very unlikely that you have the disease. So we would update our probability to be actually about one in 100,000 now because, okay. you, because you got that positive test. So that's the, the base rate fallacy, but it, it pops up all over the place. There's a few things that happen. So like you said, you felt com- compelled to give an answer. And, you know, you so you sort of winged it a bit uh, because you didn't want to say, I don't know. And that's not a terrible thing to do when you're we're, we're having a chat in the podcast. But if that was a real life situation, you really were the doctor and you felt compelled to give an answer. That's a much bigger problem. And that actually does, yeah. happen, you know, because you, your medical professional or whatever doesn't they don't want to necessarily tell the patient, well, I haven't really a clue. They want people want them to give them an answer and they want to give the answer. And so maybe they're inclined rather than just going, oh, I don't know. I don't understand these stats. They might be inclined to jump to a conclusion that could be the wrong one. Now, so we try to, you know, if I teach stats to the medics, I try to beat that out of them, but it's still a risk in the way everyone teaches. And it's almost more of a risk for people who are in a, used to being in a position of being an expert uh, and being an authority that you have to remind them that you don't know things. And in this case, it's not that you don't know it because you're ignorant. It's because you actually don't have enough information. So you have to remember to really hold back a little bit and be more methodical in your thinking before you jump to a conclusion. This leads us neatly into COVID. And kind of going back to my old perception of statistics as in list of numbers, every day we hear about case numbers and hopefully um, not deaths numbers, but it has, they, you know, they have reappeared. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm emotionally involved in these bloody numbers. Like I'm looking up coronavirus worldometer, like more often than Facebook these days. And my emotional well-being is invested now in how many cases there are a day. And I'm, like, it's not healthy and I know it's yeah. necessary, but where does a statistician stand on very regular data to be fair to the you know the medical professionals they are providing context but the context might not always get to us because the story is grim and we don't want to read 
spend all day reading about it. So what we get is a tweet with 205 today. Thankfully, yeah. no deaths. Oh, like, is you know, are we doing better than any other country? Can Are we doing worse than them? Oh, shit. It must be interesting for you as a statistician watching numbers and thinking they need somebody needs to be treating those numbers before the people are swallowing them because they're a little bit toxic at the moment yeah it's interesting actually i find i always find that i'm observing myself because i have the exact same thing i have this emotional attachment but in my case i also i i know that what i'm doing is nonsense in a way so i know that I'm well aware of the problem of interpreting these numbers, but emotionally, I still do it anyway. And I still have the same, exact same thing. I want to check the numbers every day. I'm, I've got myself off it a little bit in the last month or so, but certainly back in, uh, in March and April, I was you know going on every day looking at the number of cases. And I was doing this, like you said, thing. It's almost like watching football or something, this emotional thing, like cross my fingers. I hope the cases have gone down today. And if the cases have gone down today, you know that's a, that's a good thing. And of course, the problem with that you know, these numbers are wildly erratic. There's a huge amount of uh, noise and variability in them. You know, the number of cases, if you look in Ireland, the number of cases from day to day will go up and down and up and down hugely. And you can't really tell what's going on on a day-to-day basis. It takes a few days, probably a few weeks to really actually detect if there's a trend going on there. I also at the same time think that the reason maybe officially why they're putting out these numbers. Well, there's two things. One is they're putting out the numbers as a way of making people take it seriously. So by continually reporting the numbers, it reminds people that this is still a thing to take seriously. Uh, but it also has, especially at kind of a, at a height of the crisis, maybe a couple of months ago, it had this emotional value that people want to know that someone is monitoring this, someone is taking, uh, is keeping count, checking, having those daily updates and giving those, you know, has a, maybe an emotional value that's not reflected at all in the actual statistical value of the information they're giving. You know, um, I think I mentioned to you before, like I have a, a few friends who are really into weather forecasting. It's an obsession they have. And, you know, some of them actually like build their own, you know, weather forecasting models and they get data from, you know, the European Weather Center and they feed it into their own big computational model and they crunch it out and they do all this sort of thing. But there's almost a game with it that, uh, People are always interested in saying, well, my weather model, you know, will give you updates every hour. It'll try to predict whether it's going to rain in Dublin every hour and update that. Whereas if you look at Medair and, you know, Medair will give you a prediction essentially for the day or maybe for a 12 hour period. The thing about that is that the model that gives you an update every half hour is complete nonsense. Essentially, it's just giving you noise. It's giving you, there's so much uncertainty in the system that the numbers it's giving you aren't really reliable. Uh, but if you averaged it out over the day, it would probably give you the same answer that Matt Aaron gives you. But people like to be able to say, oh, it's really cool. It gives you a prediction every half hour. And you can go to this website and you can see this weather model. It gives you a forecast for every five minutes. And people take people like that. They think that by seeing this thing that has this really detailed forecast, so they're getting more information. Actually, what you're being given is more and more uncertainty, only they're not telling you that. They're giving you completely unreliable information and not telling you about all the uncertainty that goes into it. Uh, like our brains don't work well at dealing with this. We're getting small snapshots of a really noisy statistical process that's happening over a period of weeks. And we're not able to take that in. Instead, we just look at it went down today and it went up yesterday and, and act as if that means something. If the disease is suppressed, is it just one of those grim things that mathematicians find a bit like if they're an actuary working out, you know, when people will die or 
people who buy drugs for governments weren't wondering how much is a, is a life. Is there another grim conundrum for the statistician and those who study disease that if it's suppressed, you don't have the data? No, it's, this is definitely the case. It's not even just with something like COVID. It, it happens in all medical research, you know, which is that essentially you can't learn anything about a disease, you know, without there being bad outcomes, but which I mean, you know, you, you only learn what causes people to die when they die. You know, you only learn about the progression of a disease when, when people progress and become, become ill. So for example, with COVID, you know, in the early days, yeah, we didn't have uh, enough people uh, going into hospital. You know, you have all these biases and whatever. Like, we talked about biases already, but you're looking at data of, okay, how many patients go to hospital? How many of them end up in ICU? How many of them end up in ventilators? And you want to try to answer questions. You want to try to say, well, how effective are all the different possible treatments? Um, you know, which groups of people with which conditions are most at risk and so on. And in the early days, you just don't have enough data to do that. And then you're in this sort of uncomfortable situation where you're going, we sort of have to wait. We sort of have to wait for more people to die to make those choices. That's not what the doctors do, obviously. What, what, medic, what medics do is they use their best. If they see a new, new disease, I mean, generally they use their best guess of what's going to work and they do that until they find out otherwise. So they'll, you know, they'll say, well, we'll treat it like some other disease that appears to be similar. Uh, this is what happened early in COVID, actually. You know, they uh, started treating people with COVID uh, basically along the same lines that you treat people who have um, what's called acute respiratory distress syndrome. So I think in the early days, they were using that as a guideline for how to treat COVID. And then gradually you learn that slight, you know, maybe slightly different methods work better. You only learn that, unfortunately, from studying the people who had bad outcomes. You learn it because after the fact, what worked and what didn't and what caused them to die and what didn't. Uh, before that happens, sometimes you just don't have the information to know. And I said, I work in uh, doing statistics with people doing medical trials, for example. And one of the big problems we have is not just about actually knowing, you know, because sometimes you can have a very strong idea about something, but but with medical stuff, you also have to be able to prove it with a certain degree of statistical rigor. So we have to design trials to prove, for example, that some treatment is effective. And, and usually the way you prove that a treatment is effective is that you do a, a trial where you have essentially two groups of patients and you get one group of patients gets the treatment and another group doesn't. So they either get the old treatment that you used to have, or they just get nothing if there's no other treatment available. And then you have to wait until enough people have gone through your trial that you can show, okay, that the people who got the treatment actually got better than the people who didn't. And there's an awful conundrum there um, for the people, especially for the medical people running those trials, which is that they might believe very strongly that one treatment is better than the other. But in order for that treatment to prove it's effective and you have to prove it's effective for it to be uh, certified and for it to be approved as a treatment and for you to be legally allowed to give it to lots of other people, you have to go through this process of statistically proving beyond a certain degree of doubt that it is better and that it doesn't bring other risks with it and that the risk of other side effects isn't low enough. So that often means that you have to continue giving other people a treatment that you believe to be less effective until such time as you've actually proven this. That's that's a difficult thing to have to do. Uh, and I, in fact, sometimes that difficulty, you know, can end up uh, undermining for the, for the, with the best intentions can end up actually undermining research. It's really interesting because like I'm almost picturing this 
Hollywood movie where a doctor says, you know, the passionate doctor says to the cold-hearted statistician, like, I don't care about your damn numbers. My job is to save lives. And, you know, it's all yes. drama. And, and you had an example before about the, the ECMO machine and the dilemma that doctors were under, which really illustrates medicine versus maths, doesn't it? Yeah. So this was um, an example, and this is an example of a trial of a ECMO, uh, I think stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. I'm pretty sure. So ECMO is a machine that essentially uh, tries to act like uh, a heart and lungs. So it, um, it actually basically takes the blood out of someone's body and actually removes the carbon dioxide and adds in oxygen, which is what your lungs do, and then puts the blood, the blood back into the bloodstream. So someone who's have has complete like lung failure, which is actually what happens uh, in the people who die with COVID for the most part, um, this thing can actually essentially act as their lungs. So it's something that you would only use with someone who's critically ill, like really uh, severely ill, and it's a potentially life-saving uh, treatment. But there was a question because when this is developed, and it's an extremely expensive machine, I think there's only two of them in Ireland. You know, it costs a huge amount of money, People don't want to necessarily invent and it's difficult to run and you have to train people and so on. So you have to always with these sort of things prove that it's going to, that it's worth spending the money and training the staff to use it and so on. So they wanted to do a trial with ECMA when it was first came out. And the idea of the trial was you would get people who are critically ill with, you know, respiratory failure where their lungs are absolutely failing to work and they're not getting oxygen in and they're not exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide and they're going to die. And what normally happens with that is that you put people on a on a ventilator, but the ventilator essentially can't replace your lungs. It just pumps air into your lungs, really. So they wanted to show that using the ECMO was essentially superior to just using a ventilator. But in order to do that, of course, what you have to do is take people who are critically ill, who are on the, at death's door, very likely to die. And then you have to put some of them on the ECMO machine, you have to randomly decide that some of them will go on the ECMO machine and some of them will go on the ventilator. And essentially, you have to do this with a, significant, a large enough number of patients to show that it works. You have to show that more people died because they didn't get it. Yeah. The doctors running the trial knew or they strongly believed that the ECMO was more effective than the ventilator. And what would often happen with this trial was that when people were getting really ill and they thought they were going to die, people who've been randomized to be on the ventilator and that they were about to die, that the doctors would sometimes decide, well, okay, we're just going to put them on the other machine, the ECMO machine. Yeah, we're going to try, we're going to try anything to keep them alive. Yeah. Which is the natural thing to do. But the result of that from, for the trial that they were running was that in the end, uh, the trial failed. And I failed, I mean, that it didn't show that the ECMO was, significantly better even though and you know people looked at the data and i even looked at some of the papers about it it seems pretty obvious that it is better but what happened with the trial was that they ended up putting it because normally with a trial like that you said you would randomize patients patients would be randomly assigned to one or the other and so you would expect that everything kind of averages out there wouldn't be any huge differences between the people who went on one machine and the people who went on the other so there wouldn't be more sick people put on the, the, exactly. So they ended up that, that all the really sick people, or at least a lot of the really sick people, all ended up on the one machine and not the other. And then, of course, a lot of them died anyway. So the trial didn't show that the people who were on the ECMO machine had a better survival than the people who were on the 
the ventilator. But of course, the people on the ECMO machine were actually the sicker patients. So oh, well, yeah. in reality, when you look into the data, it seems very likely that the ECMO machine is significantly better. But they, the trial that they needed to do failed. And that's a problem because you know those sort of trials are needed to get approval for a treatment, but they also are needed, for example, like in to get uh, health insurers or even to get like public health systems to say that they will fund a treatment. They generally have rules and they say you have to prove that it's effective and you have to prove that it's cost effective. So you have to prove that the money that we would put into this machine uh, is going to basically save more lives than putting the money into something else. So, you know, the, the health system doesn't have a huge, an infinite amount of cash. So you have to make these decisions about which things that are worth investing in and which are, and you have to prove that it's worth investing in. So if you don't do that, if you do that trial, like they did it, the result was that they didn't prove that it was worth investing the money in this machine, even though it very likely is. That's why you, it, it's, it's a real conundrum. I mean, because I don't think that you can blame the people around that trial for the decisions they made and they have. Uh, an obligation and a commitment to do their best to save lives. For someone like me, who's very, I had no involvement in that whatsoever. I just read about it. And I'm a statistician and I just go, you know, I, I do think, oh, well, that's a sh- such a shame that they biased their own study against themselves and, and didn't get the result. And then it's potentially affected the ability to get that treatment approved and it could have bad effects elsewhere. Now, in that particular case, I think people sort of looked at it and just went, oh, well, most people were convinced anyway, so it actually is in use. But that sort of thing can happen with medical trials all the time. So you we, need this distinction between the doctor who has to be, or the nurse or whoever, who has to be both empathetic, but also has to care about you know doing the best for their patient. And then you need someone who can stand back and be very sort of cold about it and actually just look at the data and decide what's the best thing to do to get the results, to get the truest result out of this trial, for example. Vaccine news is going to be weaponized now, isn't it? Over the next while, it's going to be it's going to be used on the eve of elections, either you know, possibly even here as well, or certainly in America. When we're reading news, what should we look out for to avoid another bloody roller coaster of emotions that we already experience with the numbers every day? Uh, what's your what are your tips? I mean, with vaccines, uh, at least. One thing you can say about vaccines is that most of the vaccine trials are being done on a large scale by large organizations. It's it's even more of a minefield when you look at, um, you know, treatments that are not vaccines that are going to be rolled out in this big national scale, where you look at things like, you know, the thing, thing we had about hydroxychloroquine or whatever, for example, where you had loads of really small studies trying to show results, a lot of which were nonsense. The thing about something like a a medical trial is, you know, Obviously, the larger the sample that you do it in, provided you do it right, the larger the sample that you do it in, the more certainty you have about your results. And when someone comes up with a statistical result to show that you know a vaccine is effective or that a drug is more effective than another drug or whatever, they're essentially usually computing a number. It's a bit like, as I said, the, the t-test earlier, the t-number. That's basically what they're doing. They're computing some number. And that number uh, depending exactly on what they're doing, there's some formula for that number. And it usually involves it being multiplied by the square root of N, where N is the number of people involved in the trial. So that means that uh, if you get four times as many people in a trial, your result is likely to be kind of, if you like, twice as accurate. If you get 16 times as many people in the trial, your result is likely to be four times as accurate. 
if you want to increase your level of accuracy or confidence in the result of, say, a drug trial, you need to get sort of exponentially more and more people. If you want to uh, get three times more confidence, you sort of have to get nine times more people. It's the square of the number. So to do something like a vaccine, for a vaccine, vaccine is a thing that's going to be given to everybody, potentially. Right? So if you get a, if you get a drug that's treating cancer, that drug might have a lot of bad side effects, but generally the, the sort of thing you do is you go, well, it appears that it's the benefit of the drug maybe outweighs the side effects because they have cancer and they're dying. So it's worth giving someone a drug with severe side effects like chemo in some cases because it's better than the alternative of not giving it to them. If you've got a vaccine, you're going to give that vaccine to million, potentially to millions or billions of healthy people. So you've got to be very, very sure that the vaccine is safe, that it doesn't have um, some terrible side effects, like one in 10,000 people gets some weird autoimmune disease that really is, is very damaging to them. So you need, you need basically for a vaccine, what I'm trying to say is to be confident that it's safe, you need really huge numbers of people in trials. So often medical trials for drugs might have a few hundred in them. For vaccines, you talk about tens of thousands of people that they would do in a trial before they would really be confident to say that they will throw this out to the, the wider population. So if you see a trial and a result reported for a vaccine, for example, in some newspaper that says it has promising results, almost the first thing that I would do is go looking for that sample size. How many sample size, okay. Uh, and if you're not, if you're talking about a vaccine for COVID and they haven't given it to people in the thousands, I mean, high numbers of thousands of people, uh, you've got to be very cautious about that because they just aren't giving it enough to enough people to know that it's safe. And because when I say, say what, what we mean by safe, if you're talking about drugs, as I said, varies very much depending on what you're giving it for. But for a vaccine, it has to be very, very safe because you're going to give it to people who aren't ill. Uh, and like for the COVID vaccine, if you were going to give it to kids who aren't even really affected by COVID, even if they have it, you know, you would want to be very sure that the risk that the vaccine isn't going to have any potential side effect that's worse than the COVID. Um. Which isn't to say that, uh, obviously, that we want to in any way encourage anti-vax loon. <laughs> uh, yeah. But what I mean is that this sort of stuff normally happens behind the scenes. People don't develop vaccines in the full glare of public attention. Okay. It's been years doing it and conducting trials and conducting safety trials for years and years before anyone ever, it ever sees the light of day. And you, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, well, the big project that I'm working on is again in medicine it's uh, in, well, I suppose what we call digital medicine so I work with a, a team in Beaumont Hospital there in respiratory medicine there and we have a few cool little devices so we have a, a little electronic tracker device that goes on people's inhalers who have asthma say or COPD and it records when they take their inhaler and it records how much uh, when they breathe in and they take their inhaler it actually records how well they're able to suck in the inhaler and we also have uh, another device that tracks that they breathe into it a couple of times a day and it records how well their lungs are working, roughly speaking. And what I'm working on is uh, a lot of kind of stats and uh, machine learning modeling with that data to try and predict, uh, can we predict when people are going to have asthma attacks? Um, can we detect if they're having an asthma attack now based on the data that comes from the devices? And also, you know, generally trying to work on ways to use all this data to really personalized medicine so we can actually identify exactly what's happening with an individual patient 
and adjust their treatment to you know prevent that asthma attack before it happens and try to use all this data that's being generated to kind of get the best for each individual instead of treating them all the same. So long after the statistics journey that began with uh, what is the average heights of all the boys in third class or whatever, you know, that kind of what seems, what's the point and all that. You are working on stuff that presumably a million miles away from where you might have thought you'd end up. Yeah, it's nothing like what I thought I'd, I'd do. You know, uh, when I was in school, I wanted to be, or I went to college, I wanted to be a physicist, you know, uh, but I just ended up getting drawn into this area that at first from the outside might seem really dry, but actually when I got into it, I think it's, what's so exciting about it is that uh, there's all these really cool questions that I, I, I suddenly find that, hang on, I can answer that. You know, I got into this medical research group where they had this these devices that were creating all this data and, you know, people kind of knew they said this data should be able to tell us. We should be able to figure out, you know, when someone's going to have an asthma attack from this data, but we don't know how. And suddenly I went, oh, I know how. And that's a, that was a really cool moment for me to say I spent years with these kind of abstract math skills. And now I suddenly realized here's a really useful thing that I can do and I'm putting it to you. So I'm really excited about it. And that's, uh, it's what we all want really is to feel useful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I kind of thought when I was even younger, I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a social worker or something. <laughs> I didn't do that because I'm not, you know, I don't have maybe the uh, the right kind of combination of per, you know, personality for it. But I, I, I did eventually find that I can do something that I really enjoy, which is doing maths, and that I can actually maybe put it to some useful, socially useful purpose as well. And that's it from the function room. Now, I had to cut out loads of good stuff out of that because it was an interesting chat that went on for nearly two hours and I've just started in podcasting and I haven't really earned the right to demand two hours of your time yet. So a big thanks to Garrett for his time and to Garrett's partner, Claire, for giving him that time because they are the parents of fairly newly born triplets. What are the chances of that? Well, Garrett's probably the man to work out the chances of that and I think he is working on a paper on the incidence of triplets and statistical analysis so uh, we'll definitely come back to him on that for now please like and subscribe to the podcast The Function Room give me feedback at Colm O'Regan C-O-L-M-O-R-E-G-A-N on Twitter or at Function Room Pod also on Twitter or email hello at colmoregan.com talk to you very soon bye bye about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.